Uh, today's scripture comes from Galatians chapter 3, verse 15 to 25. Galatians chapter 3, verse 15 to 25. Please stand with me with, for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean, the law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. But if the inheritance comes by the law, it, is no, longer, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith will be revealed. So then the law was, under our, was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, let's pray at this time. God, our helper, by your Holy Spirit, open our minds that as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may be led into your truth and taught your will. For the sake of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. I want to talk about three things today, and I, I, I'm hoping to weave through it, and that is the promise the law, and living in the promise of the gospel. So the promise, the law, and living in the promise of the gospel. Earlier in the chapter, and we talked about it two weeks ago, Paul answers the question, are we saved by faith or are we saved by, by works of the law? And he continues in the passage that John read today that he is going to continue uh, arguing this point with a human example. And the human example is this. Once you ratify a covenant, you can't just add to it or simply cancel it. So once, you, once a covenant is established, you can't just add to it or cancel it. And a covenant, I want us to understand, is not to be confused with a contract. A covenant is not a contract. With a contract, if one agreeing party does something in violation of the contract, then that contract is considered broken. The whole contract can become null and void. Basically, the signers of a contract agree to hold up their ends as long as the other parties or the signatories hold up their end too. But with a covenant, all parties agree to hold up their ends regardless of whether one or another party keeps their part of the agreement. Does that make sense? In a covenant, 
all parties agree to hold up their ends regardless of whether one or another party keeps their part of the agreement. And a violation by one covenant partner doesn't mean that the whole covenant is outdone or done away with. And the party, all parties are continually responsible to hold to the covenant. One of the more secular covenants, I suppose, that we can look at in the United States anyway, is the Declaration of Independence that helped launch this nation. The Declaration of Independence was signed by 56 men who all understood that they were committing high treason by signing this against the British government. And Benjamin Franklin famously highlighted at that time when he wrote, we all must hang together or assuredly we shall all hang separately. And the concluding sentence of the Declaration states this, and for the support of this Declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. It didn't matter if one of the signers didn't uh, uphold to this, or if um, the Confederates broke and switched sides, they were still committed to this course of action regardless, and especially if it cost them their lives. And we know that most of the signers were made to pay dearly for their stand against the British. There's another covenant that we also uh, experience and that we go through. And it's sad because a lot of us now don't have this idea of covenant and we only know about contract. And so if you don't do something, uphold to that agreement, it's all null and void. But there is another covenant that we go through, and that covenant is called marriage. Jesus is the one that said, haven't you read the scriptures? They record that from the beginning, God made them male and female. And he said, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one, since they are no longer two but one. Let no one split apart what God has joined together. And this idea of covenant is being lost on our generation. And more and more people are more easily thinking all these things. All that I have to think about now is when I deal with people is contractually. And if you don't do something, then boom, we're done. If you don't uphold the agreement of friendship or what I believe friendship to be, we are not friends. We are not associates. We are not coworkers. We are not man and wife. And so this is a misunderstanding that we have to get out of our system. And we need to understand that what was given to as promise in the beginning of this uh, passage is a covenant. Covenant. Now the question is, to whom was this covenant um, made toward? Um, In verse 16 it says, Now the promises are made to Abraham and his offspring. And it does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ. Now when people read this, their minds must have just exploded. When I read this, I immediately wouldn't have put that together, but I did turn to Genesis chapter 12 when Abraham makes that, uh, is given that promise, the covenant is made by God, to your offspring I will give this land. It's one, it's singular. 
ah, it must have been, it must have meant, it's like, but Abraham had like two children, albeit one was with Hagar, and, but it must have been, ah, it must have been Isaac. Isaac, uh, you know, Ishmael wasn't really Abraham's kid, even though he was. You can just think Ishmael wasn't Abraham's real kid. And then you turn to Genesis 17. And then God goes before him and Abraham bows down to him and says, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son and you shall name him Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him, meaning Isaac, as an everlasting covenant for his offspring. So again, singular. So I'm just like, how did I miss this? And Paul is bringing it up. And it's like, oh, offspring must mean maybe Jacob. You know, not, not, you know he, he obviously had two. There's no question about it. Isaac had two kids. You can't argue that. Even if you argue Ishmael and Isaac, Isaac had two kids. They were twins, Jacob and Esau. But maybe Jacob, because Esau was a bad boy. And he, was, he sold for just some... Uh, red bean stew, which is just idiotic. So no covenant for you, <laughs> something like that, right? And then you read in Genesis chapter 28, verse 14, when God meets Jacob, he goes to Jacob, your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. This has got to be some kind of mis mistranslation in the English language. Let's go back to the Hebrew. And in the Hebrew, surely enough, it is offspring or the seed, and it is singular. And Paul points this out. And it's so amazing because for thousands of years, maybe no one got it. And maybe even now for thousands of years, people aren't getting this. In God's inheritance, he is showing us, comes through the promise, not the law. In verse 17, he says, this is what I mean by saying, this is what I mean by saying this. The law, which came 430 years afterwards, doesn't annul a covenant previously ratified by God. Just because I gave you a law doesn't annul the promise that was given and the covenant that was made as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes with, by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Now, if you continue to think about this, this is great and it's also sad. It's sad because most recently we celebrated, some of us had days off. If you work in public school, my wife had days off, but... Um, there's a holidays of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. And Yom Kippur is known as the Day of Atonement. And the Day of Atonement is once a year, the Jewish people can get together and go and have their sins forgiven and be closer to God. That's what they earnestly desire. That's why Yom Kippur is so sacred. And I was listening to the testimony of this Jewish man, and he was telling in his testimony that when he was young, he really wanted to meet God. And I resonated with that because isn't that why we're here? Isn't that why you're listening? Isn't that why we're singing? We really want to meet God. And this man had that same heart. I really want to meet God. And Yom Kippur was a promise that if I obey the law, it will connect me to God. 
If I follow these rules and regulations, I will get to know God and connect with him, and that is what I deeply, deeply desire. And he followed every single rule that he could. He fasted, he prayed, he prepared himself, he dressed nicely, and then he finally went to the, to the rabbi, and then the ceremony was done, and afterwards his question was, why didn't God meet me? And so disappointed, he'll walk back. I did all these things, I'm walking back, and he noticed something. He noticed he was wearing leather shoes. And he goes, oh my goodness, you're not supposed to wear leather on Yom Kippur. That's why. And then he thought to himself, I have to wait one more year before meeting God. And to me, while I was hearing that, I was so sad. It was so sad because we that know the gospel knows that God is ready and willing to meet us now. If only you would open your hearts to him. He is willing to take you in, talk to you, whisper to you, give you his love. If the law could have brought forth any kind of relief, you know what? then all I have to do is keep the law, isn't it? So if I run that red light, I never run red lights, so I'm just giving you a hypothetical example. If I run that red light and that red light camera catches me and that my picture is taken, my face is there, my license plate is there, and that picture is sent to my house with a ticket, you know how I get rid of it? All I have to do is go back to the red light camera and sit at the red light and wait for the camera to take a picture of me again, right? And when it takes a picture of me, it will know that now I obeyed the red light law. I didn't pass it. That's all I, all I have to do, right? And the answer is no. No, it doesn't. If the law could have brought forth relief, then all I had to do was sit at that red light and exclaim, Whoop, I kept the law. Everybody look. Now I can drive with an untainted license. And it doesn't even work that way in the outside world. So why the law? Why the law? You know, when we have a headache, we take some aspirin to alleviate that headache. But wouldn't it be foolish to think that when you get headache after headache, after headache, you think to yourself, all I need is more aspirin. I just need to take, keep on taking aspirin. The head is pounding. It's hurting. You can't function. It's like, all I need is aspirin. Don't we have to realize that the headache is a symptom to potentially a bigger disease? Taking care of the headache will not ultimately save you from the potentially dangerous underlying disease and this is what the Galatians were doing instead of taking care of the disease they're going back to the law and he was like why are you just taking care of symptoms it doesn't do it the disease causes the symptoms the law may deal with symptoms but it does not deal with the disease and we could also see it this way living by the law is a, a contractual way of living while living in the gospel is living in the promise you know, there is a difference if I go to you and say, Ho Young, you 
I love you. I'm going to give you my car, my laptop, my phone, my guitar, all the things I have. But you know what I didn't tell you? I didn't tell you I have $10 million in the bank. That's yours too. There's a difference between that and saying, I will give you $10 million if you live with me and take care of me for the rest of my life, plus win the next football championships. There is a difference because the first one is a gift and a promise, and the second one is a wage or law. But this is all moot. When you consider the promise came before the law, what is the purpose of the law? In verse 19, even Paul asks the obvious question, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. The law didn't come to tell us about salvation, but about sin. Its main purpose was to show us that we have a problem, that we are lawbreakers, is to prove to us that we cannot be the solution since we are unable to keep law, the law perfectly ever. Scripture shows us that the law does not impart life. The law doesn't give us life, but it points out sin. In fact, it literally goes out to show that everything, or Scripture imprisons everything under sin. You know, once you notice it, you notice it, and you keep on noticing it. This, um, this morning I put my suit jacket on, and it was black, communion, we all wear these black suits, right? And I noticed there was like a speck of dust on it. So I just went over to the dresser and I took my lint roller and I rolled it off. And as I rolled it off, guess what happens? Which probably happens to all of us. You notice another speck of dust and you roll that off. It's like, I didn't know that. I didn't notice this either. And you continue to roll. And these wool suits, man, they must be dust magnets because I just rolled and rolled and I said, I just got to give up. This is not going to happen. In fact, I walked here to church and I talked with the youth pastor, Pastor Sean. I was talking with him. And as I was talking with him, he leans over and looks over my shoulder and takes out a speck of dust off of my shoulder. There's no way. The law points that we need salvation. And it is salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And before this faith came, we were held prisoner by the law. We were held by a guardian, it says. And this guardian, when you read it, they took it as a guardian was usually someone like a slave or tutor that supervised children on the parents' behalf. We're going to see it again, this metaphor used next week in chapter 4. But as a child, you are coerced to do good things, are you not? That's not usually reflective of the heart behind the good thing that you are trying to teach them. So let's say you wanted your child to learn how to share. You're a teacher, you're a parent, whatever the case is, you want your child to learn how to share. And I've seen parents do this, and I'm sure I've done it myself. You tell your child that if she doesn't share, you will punish her. So she does share. But why does she share? Is it because now she has seen that it is good to share? Probably not. She's afraid of your punishment. And she definitely resents you, at least a little bit, because she just can't understand why it's worth putting her through this pain. Why are you putting me through this pain to, give, to make me give something away that was mine in the first place? And giving something away is already painful. And now you're punishing me? Or if you say no to punishment, saying, I'm not going to punish my child, that's too much, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to, 
I'm going to make you an offer, my son. If you share your toys, I will take you to the toy store tomorrow. Share your toys with your friends today because we invited them and you're not sharing any toys with them. But share your toys with your friends today and I will take you to the toy store tomorrow to get you an even bigger, better toy. Well, now you're just teaching your son that bribery is okay. When we are young and immature, we do need to be treated like children because our parents are hoping that one day we will grow up and see the value of doing good things because doing good gives us gratitude and joy. But imagine if we were still doing things as an adult because we were afraid of consequences, fearfully complying to the law, doing everything we can. Can we honestly say that as an adult, we are mature? The gospel brings about a heart change that cannot happen with the law. We no longer obey God for our sake, meaning we don't do things so that we can obey. We don't do things so that we can get things from God. God is now indebted to us, and we think contractually, transactionally. Rather, now we obey God for his sake. But we use the content that was taught to us by the law now to please our Father in heaven. So it's finally time for us to grow up and live by and in the promise of God through our Savior, Jesus Christ. You know, if we start treating ourselves too by the law, then we drag ourselves down. We mustn't do that. Some of us treat ourselves with this amazing grace. When we, when we talk about ourselves like amazing grace, but when we look at other people, it's amazing disdain. And that's foolishness as well. Some of us look at other individuals and say, oh, grace to you, grace to you, peace to you. But when it comes to the church, only sour apples for CGS. But what if some people in Galatia were tough on the subject of eating? In eating, we follow all these rules and laws, but soft on their own morality. Some folk are really hard on themselves. And you know what? I'm also going to be hard on others. And the whole mentality there is, I am bad, but guess what? You are bad too. So in a sense, I'm not that bad because we're all bad. So all we do is we're busy dragging ourselves down. And we see this happening and playing out literally right in front of our eyes, surrounded by this kind of thinking. But what we effectively feel like we're doing is elevating ourselves. We think we're elevating ourselves by bringing other people down to our level. But when we live in the promise, we start seeing each other as inheritors of that promise. And inheritors of the promise, we can lift others up. You know, some of us, when we go into financial debt, you can't help but to feel very stressed. Anxiety is pressing upon you. And that is why we need to pray that that it gets relieved over your life. That's why we gather to pray, not just financial stress, but physical stress, emotional duress, whatever the case is, when it presses upon us. But imagine when you have all this debt that gets alleviated. And in fact, you have a surplus now of $10 million. You know, when you start dealing with money, you may start dealing with money a little differently. And when we start living in the promise, we start dealing with each other differently too. 
instead of dragging each other down, what we ought to do is love and lift one another up. Is that what we do? Is that what we do when we think of Elder Song? Is that what we do when we think of Elder Jubin? Are we lifting them up? Is that what we do when we look at a deacon? Are the words that come out of our mouths, man, this is amazing. These are the best elders we could have ever had. She's the best deacon that we could have ever had. And this deacon, he blows me out of the water when he sings. Do we think like that? Do we love and lift one another up? If you believe you are in God's promise, then it's time to start living like you are and start treating others as they are as well. And how do we do that? Martin Luther, the great reformer, wrote that he believes in the Holy Church. But if he looks upon his own person or the person of his brother, then it shall never be holy. But if I behold Christ, who has sanctified and cleansed his church, then it is altogether holy. When we look at each other, who are we primarily seeing now? That is the question. In the gospel, who are we primarily seeing? Because you know why that's important? Because it's how Christ saw you. It's how Christ saw us. When Jesus was taking in resumes and applications for disciples, he went to a consulting agency. This is, this is a joke, okay? I just need to lay it out there. So people are like, he did go to a consulting agency? I didn't know there was a consulting agency 2,000 years ago. Please. Okay. When Jesus was taking applications and resumes for his disciples, he went to a consulting agency. Let's call it the Jordan Management Consultants, right? And they did his help. So this is what they wrote to Jesus. Dear sir, thank you for submitting the resumes of the 12 men you have picked for managerial positions in your new organization. All of them now have taken our battery of tests, and we have not only run the results through our computer, but also arranged personal interviews for each of them with our psychologist and vocational aptitude consultant. The profiles of all the tests are included, and you will want to study each of them carefully. As part of our service, we make some general comments for your guidance, much as an auditor will include some general statements. This is a this is given as a result of staff consultation and comes without any additional fee. It is the staff opinion that most of your nominees are lacking in background, education, and vocational aptitude for the type of enterprise you are undertaking. They do not have the team concept. We would recommend that you continue your search for persons of experience in managerial ability and proven capability. Simon Peter is emotionally unstable and given to fits of temper. Andrew has absolutely no qualities of leadership. The two brothers, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, place personal interest above company loyalty. Thomas demonstrates a questioning attitude that would tend to undermine morale. We feel that it is our duty to tell you that Matthew ha had been blacklisted by the Greater Jerusalem Better Business Bureau. James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus definitely have radical leanings 
and they both registered a high score in the manic depressive scale. One of the candidates, however, shows great potential. He's a man of ability and resourcefulness, meets people well, has a keen business mind, and has contacts in high places. He is highly motivated, ambitious, and responsible. We recommend Judas Iscariot as your controller and right-hand man. All of the other profiles are self-explanatory. We wish you the very best and success in your new venture. The way we see things are not the way God sees it. The way God saw us. We had nothing. And he took us and he made us who we are. That's how God sees you. It's time for us to see how God sees when we deal with one another. I pray that we will be a church that will lift one another up, see in each other what God saw in you, and encourage one another, thereby building his church. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this time and this moment where we get to meet the Most High Creator, the God of love that surrounds us and saw when no one else, not even ourselves, worth, you gave us worth. And Lord God, we pray that we would also be a people that would see things the way you see, think like you think, and for that, we ask that your Holy Spirit would come down here in this place into the minds and hearts of the people that are calling out to you now, meeting us where we are. Let's take this time to pray and meditate on what we have heard today through the scripture reading and through the message. And let's ask God to change our minds, to renew our hearts so that it can be more like him. Let's take this time to pray.